Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Who's Talking, a new podcast where we talk about all things Doctor Who. I'm Michael. And I'm Maggie. And this week we're going to be talking about the season premiere of Doctor Who Flux, the Halloween Apocalypse. On Halloween, all across the universe, terrifying forces are stirring. From the Arctic Circle to deep space, an ancient evil is breaking free. And in present-day Liverpool, the life of Dan Lewis is about to change forever. Why is the Doctor on the trail of the fearsome Carvanista? And what is the flux? So, Maggie, what did you think about the episode? I thought it was a really solid episode. I tried to go into it with no real expectations because, you know, it's been a few years. I mean, I say years. We did get the New Year's special and all that. But, um, you know, they're filming in the middle of a pandemic. You gotta, you gotta go into it with, you know, give them props for all the effort that they're putting in. I was very pleased with the episode. I thought it was really, really solid. I didn't need to lower my expectations. I felt the same way. I, I, Going into it, I was really excited, like like buzzing, mostly because I'm I'm always like that with Doctor Who, because like every episode it's is Doctor a, Who exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I, but I was like trying to like tamper my expectations a little bit because like I knew it was gonna be, you know, the first part of a story, so it wasn't gonna be a whole thing. And also like I didn't want to have my hopes so high that there was no chance of it meeting them. But like I, I feel the same way. I know that I texted you. Right after it aired, saying, where has this show been the whole time? (laughs) I believe your exact words were, has Chibnall been capable of this all along? (laughs) But I stand by it, because it was just like, this is, it was everything that I felt had been missing from the past couple years. Except, of course, an ending, which, but it's too early for an ending. That's the unfortunate bit about the um, season-long arc, as opposed to individual episodes, is that we don't know the ending until the next episode. And, and every bit of this episode was just set up for future episodes, which is fine. That's what, like, all shows that you're using this formula do. But it does make it really hard to determine, like, if this is working or not. Because these are all just, like, great ideas, but it's so much going to depend on how well they are built upon later. So last week, we had kind of put down a list of the things that we thought a good premiere should have. Yes. Which were defining the characters and their situations, defining the premise of the season, and having a sense of fun. So, my question for you is, do you think the episode accomplished those things? I think it did with uh, some of the characters, and it did w- didn't with others. I think... I was surprised at how quickly we managed to get the, um, sort of establish the connection between Yaz and the Doctor and where they are in their partnership at this point. Pleasantly surprised. I was very pleased. They just launched right into that, which was great. I think they might have had a bit too many different characters interacting with Dan that I had 
you know, having to keep track of them is... I, 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 I get what you're, you're saying with the Dan stuff. Although I think the only character that is going to be relevant going forward is uh, Diane. Oh, yeah, definitely. Everything else I think was just there to try and establish that he's this kind-hearted, down-on-his-luck guy. I didn't expect to like Dan. And then he, but you immediately like him. Instantly. Like, just about, just even his passion for Liverpool, which is just, sure, I know nothing about Liverpool, so that's great. But even that, just seeing somebody have passion always makes you excited. Especially in TV, where people don't tend to have, like, niche interests in television. Yeah. Unless you're, like, a character who likes Star Trek, and then Star Trek is <laughs> the only defining uh, aspect of your personality. But that's not even a niche interest anymore. This is true. But but I also think that some of what makes Dan work as well as he did is, like, the inherent charisma that John Bishop has. Like, I think there's just – it's sort of like how – I hate to compare him to, to Donna, but I think there, there's an apt comparison there because uh, Catherine Tate and John Bishop were both famous comedians before being in Doctor Who. And so I think it's sort of similar how to how Donna was just immediately likable – Partially because Catherine Tate is just like that. And, and so it's, it's the writers writing to the strengths of the actors. John Bishop is, is kind of, is just kind of this charming everyman. So it makes sense to write Dan kind of like that because it, it lets them just kind of get off to that quick start without having to spend all of this time telling you anything. It's like we can just watch him be charming and then have his door kicked down by a giant dog. Which And what did you think of the Carvanista going into that? How do you think that the Carvanista was established? I love the, the, the twist on the Carvanista very much not being a bad guy. But I'm also not entirely sure that the episode really sets that twist up. Because for the first, like, 20 minutes, it's like he's threatening to kill people. And he even threatens to execute Dan at one point. But that doesn't tra- that doesn't really track with the fact that Carvinista says he has to protect Dan. Yeah, yeah. No, I definitely get that. He definitely seemed to be trying to be two different characters at once. But that being said, that's sort of nitpicky. Oh, that's definitely nitpicky. But also, like, it's it's a giant dog, and I love him. I know. Dan called him cute, and I was like, I feel validated. <laughs> the bit where he just. Rubbed the <laughs> rubbed Carvinista's face <laughs> made me laugh so hard. I would have liked to see Carvinista just walking through the streets of Liverpool, a la that scene in Hocus Pocus. Yes, where it's just the completely out of place, looking at trick or treaters. Like, is this hu- human society these days? This is just par for the course. They do this every night. I would have kind of, like, on that note, I would have kind of liked it if there had been a little bit more time to show Carvanista trying to find Dan. There's that one, like, super quick shot of his, like, probe, I guess, that finds him at the soup kitchen. But I I, I think it just would have been something, like you were saying, really fun about giant dog man walking down the street trying to blend in while finding the human he's about to kidnap. But I think that gets to that that gets to a point that I wanted to make about something else you said, which was that you felt like the episode couldn't quite develop a lot of the side characters. And I, I would agree with that to the point that I think they maybe should have held off on introducing a couple of those characters until like next episode. 
because because there there are some of them that just get introduced so quickly, like the guy in um the Liverpool tunnels in the eighteen hundreds, which is actually I looked this up. He is a real eccentric who lived in the time. His name is uh, Joseph Williamson, and he was really building a bunch of tunnels in Liverpool. And I think the whole thing was nobody knew why. Ah. Uh-huh. But you don't really get any of that from... No, you don't. You absolutely do not get that. You just get that there is some sort of construction project happening and two old British guys are angry about it. Which could just... That could mean anything. And I feel like the same is kind of true for Swarm Sister Azure. She's she's called Anna when she's a human, but when she is transformed into her normal state, I guess, her name is Azure, or Azure, I'm not... Sure, they ever pronounced it. Yeah, and they don't really give us any context for that. They don't give us anything for what Anna and her husband John are doing in the Arctic Circle. They don't really tell us how uh, Swarm found them or what the beeping thing means. Exactly. And so I feel like it's one of those things that they maybe could have held off for a week so that they could maybe do it with a little bit more depth maybe not depth but just have a little bit longer time to explore it alternatively this episode could have been like 15 minutes longer and they could have just kept it the way it was but had a little bit of extra time to develop some of these things i would have liked for them to establish uh whether or not anna azure knew who she was before swarm came in because that was something that i was confused on yeah i i I couldn't tell like, I feel like the implication might have been that she didn't remember, like, along the lines of when the doctor has used that fob watch. But at the same time, it happens so quickly that you're not able to tell, because she definitely recognizes whatever that beeping thing was. Also, I feel like they built up the two security guards that Swarm kills initially. They sort of built up a nice little back and forth between them. I was like, oh, there's a whole backstory here. This security guard's a rookie. It's it's going to be a whole thing. Maybe they're going to be new side characters. And then they're just dead. I feel like the side characters that they chose to spend their precious minutes on were not the right ones. Yeah. That being said, I think one character that they spent a decent amount of time on, though I would have liked a little bit more was Claire. Yes. Yes. I am so excited about Claire. I didn't have an opinion on her, and when she first started talking, I was like, okay, so, you know, a Carrie Mulligan type. And then she made the long way round comment, and I promptly lost it. I am so interested, in a good way, as to what is going on with her. Because she seems to to know what's going on, but is also surprised at what's going on. Which suggests that so, so she's obviously tied in with the Weeping Angels, as we see, like, five minutes later. Oh, yes. But normally when the Weeping Angels send you back in time, you know, you get older. And the implication is that she's experienced this before. Because she's, she knows that she's going to meet the Doctor and Yaz in their future. Which means it's happened in her past. But she goes immediately from that meeting to getting sent back in time. By the Weeping Angels. Which implies that this is the second time that that's happened, at least. At least. But she also mentions that she's not sure about what's going on. See, I took that as she wasn't quite sure her experience was necessarily real. She, I, You know, there might have been like a whole Dorothy, this is all a dream situation. 
that that's valid but i'm 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 curious i'm wondering if this has been happening a lot like i'm wondering if what's happening is she's somehow going to different timelines and so she's gone back to the past and met the doctor sometimes but hasn't met her other times and so she's not 100% sure which what is actually real at this point okay so instead of being uh instead of having some allusions to uh the dearly departed clara oswald she is a Loki variant? Maybe. That's not the only allusion to previous Doctor... I mean, I know for both of us, one of the th- uh, things that we've taken a little bit of issue with with Chibnall is he sort of seemed uh, very reluctant to recognize anything from Russell T. Davies or Stephen Moffat. But in this episode, we have uh, the space station that Vinder is on, which is uh, Outpost Rose. We've got the cloister bell. I was so excited when I heard that cloister bell. So is this just them lovingly referencing it, or is this part of a greater plan? It's a really good... I, I, I cannot... It would be such a big coincidence for that that outpost to be to coincidentally be named Rose. It's the kind of thing that seems intentional, but I don't know what the intention would be. Unless they're trying to do some sort of bad wolf thing, but they already did that with bad wolf and then with Torchwood. Yeah, and I don't think that they're going to bring back Rose either. So maybe it's a callback, but it's such a specific callback that raises a lot of like, I don't want to say red flags, but it raises a lot of flags where you're like, huh. That's a weird choice. And I also did see um, speculation on Tumblr. Not not speculation per se, but there's a lot of people who noticed that uh, this is not the first time that the Doctor has hit the TARDIS with a mallet. Yep. That was, that was an RTD thing. Yes, it was. Speaking of the TARDIS, what is going on? It's leaking fluid. I know. The TARDIS just got this whole redesign and now it's sick. Poor thing. I wonder if the flux is making it sick, because the flux is sort of tearing apart the universe, like making it implode almost. So I wonder if that kind of destruction is messing with like the fundamental elements that make the TARDIS work. How can you travel in, you know, time and space when half of time and space is gone? Yeah, that's my guess is that they're, they're tied together. And this isn't the first time that we've seen the TARDIS in trouble. It certainly had various explosions, most notably, of course, being the explosion that Van Gogh saw. The one that, that rebooted the universe? Yes. That everybody, that every Whovian had in their college dorm room. I hope, and I don't think he's going to, but I, I hope he doesn't kind of go that route again where the TARDIS has to reboot the universe or something. It, it It's hard to look at, you know... The TARDIS falling apart and the universe ending and all of these things as though they're not connected the way that they've been connected before. Like, you know, I'm not, I don't think they're connected in a, like, a causal way in that I don't think the TARDIS is causing the flux. But I do think the flux is causing the TARDIS to malfunction. I can definitely see that. Now, speaking of the flux, I was right in my prediction that the flux was going to be a wave. You are indeed. I'm pretty proud of myself for that. As you should be. How do you feel about it? Kind of ambivalent. Like, I don't mean that in a bad way. It's, it's, I'm, I'm more curious if the implication that Swarm is controlling the Flux is accurate. Because he kind of seems like he is. 
the the aftermath of the flux when it hits planets looks awful similar to the effects of swarm dissolving you know the the division agents so i'm the implication seems to be that swarm and the flux are connected but it also feels awful early to confirm something like that and how do you feel about swarm getting into the doctor's mind like that it's it's like an easy shortcut to make us care about a villain right like i i see what they're doing but that being said i'm having a great time oh yeah that's i'm not mad about it it's definitely it's definitely enjoyable we get to skip the uh ring around the rosy of is he the bad guy or not when he's just like telegraphing he's the bad guy it's not even telegraphing he's saying i'm the bad guy but it, I, I also like the idea of he's a character he said he so he tells the doctor that they were enemies during her time in the division which she cannot remember but he can remember all of their interactions so the idea that she is facing a villain which she knows nothing about but he knows everything about her and every move she'll make is fascinating. It's fun because it's it's always a good time to see the the super genius characters get knocked down a peg and face somebody that they're that they can't outthink. And he's got he's got real master vibes, except you know the doctor and the master are usually on even footing because you know they've known each other for millennia. Well, that's one of the big theories that's been circulating the internet is that Swarm is an early incarnation of the Master who later has his memory wiped. I'd be into Swarm being like an early incarnation of the Master. And and Sam Spruill's performance kind of harkens back to various performances from other actors who have played the Master, most notably John Sim and Sasha Dwan. Like, he's got a very similar kind of flamboyancy as those actors do. But I also kind of, I hope it's not because I really want there to be like another villainous Time Lord or another villain of the same level as the Time Lords. Absolutely. Just for sake of making the universe bigger. Yeah, the universe is infinite. There's no way that they're the be- the biggest and the best. I've seen some theories that some people think that swarm might be if not like the same species as the doctor from the same universe as the doctor is from that they they may know each other from even further back oh are you thinking that that's how the doctor ended up in our universe in the first place when she was a child because her universe got destroyed by the swarm maybe i I don't know that i'm not necessarily saying that i subscribe to this theory and I wouldn't be surprised to find out that the Doctor's universe had been destroyed by the Flux at some point. But I also wouldn't be surprised to find out if the Flux is somehow caused by the Doctor finding out she's a timeless child. I think the Flux and the Doctor's past are, like, inherently connected. Because they're making such a big deal about the Division and the Doctor trying to figure out all of this stuff about her past... And then this other thing involving a character, or seeming to involve a character from her past, is happening. There are too many things that seem linked for them all to not be linked. You know what it's, I mean? Yeah, it's the Thirteenth Doctor's final season. They can't just they can't just leave us hanging with the Timeless Child stuff and introduce a completely separate entire storyline. I still don't want them to uh, explain too much of it. Like I know they're going to explain something, but I, I hope they mostly stick to explaining her 
forgotten lives as opposed to where she came from. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, you were saying that last week, uh, keeping the Doctor mysterious. And so I think there's room to explore, you know, like, what the Ruth Doctor was up to or what any of the potentially infinite other incarnations were doing while they were working for the Division. But I don't know, I, I, I am just very excited they're doubling down on the Division, because the Division was, like, the coolest thing from last season for me. I love a good, uh, covert group who are you know, not officially recognized by the government. We love a conspiracy. But also, speaking of that, Carvanista is part of the Division. He's not a Time Lord. That's true. He's a Lupari. So is the Division an, an interplanetary organization? Or or is he like a somebody they contracted out to? Like, like a, we have a mission and this Lupari is the best person for the job. I don't know. I hadn't thought of that. I had. But only because I love Carvanista, and I hope he comes back. Well, he has to. He's connected to Dan at this point. He's connected to Dan, and the Doctor still needs that information about the Division, which was the whole reason she was hunting him down anyway. Which, side note, I love the fact that she was hunting him down, as opposed to being hunted down by him. Because there's that whole thing at the beginning where, you know, her and the Doctor are hanging over the acid ocean. And you just think, you think, oh, they've gotten in another one of their usual scrapes. Nah, the doctor's purposely hunting down the scary dog. Oh yeah, they've set up for this eventuality. They had that crash mat and everything. Yeah, <laughs> the giant mattress on the floor. Yes, that was connected to a trampoline, so they hit it properly. I'm just saying, that bed was made. They're using that bed, Maggie. They do bicker like an old married couple. Speaking of that, you you said you mentioned this like at the top of the episode about how quickly and effectively they established the Doctor and Yaz's current relationship. Like, their current dynamic. They did. I think if they hadn't had... If they hadn't started it with an argument, it wouldn't have established it. It wouldn't have worked as well. Yeah. I I like how they built off of something that was happening last season, which was uh, where it was Ryan, Graham, and Yaz were all starting to have doubts about the Doctor and were starting to get really fed up about her hiding all of these secrets from them. And so I I really appreciate that they've kept that thread going, but like turned it up to 11 where Yaz is just like, this has been going on for some time. Like they've been traveling alone together for a while, it seems. And the doctor is continuing to hide this fundamental piece of herself from Yaz. And they're establishing that she's getting away with it by allowing Yaz to have more of a partner role in their dynamic. Which is great for Yaz, because it means we get to see her, like, really taking a proactive role in these stories. Like, she is not only there and, like, experiencing everything, but she is, she's making decisions, and she is affecting the plot, rather than the plot just hitting her. Which I think happened a lot with all three of the companions, where they were less driving forces and more reactive forces. But that was also partly due to the fact that there were three of them. I agree. But speaking of the fewer numbers, did you notice that when uh, Yaz and Dan were were actually interacting with the Doctor together, that it didn't quite feel as interchangeable as it sometimes did previously, where like it felt like there was a reason Yaz was saying the lines she was saying, and there was a reason Dan was saying the lines he was saying, because Yaz and Dan are, like, identifiably different people and also, like, in different uh, 
They're in different boats when it comes to where they are with the doctor and how much they know about what's going on. Yeah. And so I think it makes the whole thing feel more dynamic and specific in a way. I felt like even when they had all three of them together, everything was character based. Even when Dan was asking like the expository questions. Well, of course he is. He literally doesn't know what's going on because he entered the TARDIS two minutes ago. And it gives Yaz the chance to take on like a mentor role of, well, this is what's going on. And also I'm frustrated at the doctor. Maybe don't trust her. And I like that. I like that Dan has such a distinctly different personality than Yaz. And then Graham, because I was really worried bringing in another older white guy. Older is a strong word, but like, you know, like a, like a, like a 40 to 50 year old white guy, which is going to be Graham 2.0. But Dan is like specifically different. And he's delightful. I mean, Graham was delightful too, but. But it's not just like, it's not just like different backstory. Like the personality is even a little different. Yeah, it's incre- it's incredibly charismatic, whereas Graham's... Graham was like kind old grandpa. Yeah, he wasn't like performative charisma. Where I think that's really important. I think, I think some of Dan's charisma is performative, like to try and mask. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. You saw it a little bit in the soup kitchen scene where um, the person that he was working with is like, are you going to take some soup home? Implying that, you know, she knows he needs it. And implying that his pride is getting in the way of him being able to get help. And, you know, he goes home and we find out, yeah, he really should have taken that. But he's putting on this performative charisma of like, no, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm just going to take care of other people. But it's clearly like at the detriment to him. And I think that's just such a really an interesting choice for a character who's going to be thrust into this intergalactic mystery. Like, there's this thing that's going to, you know, shatter his worldview to pieces. But but he's such a fundamentally, like, I'm going to take care of other people kind of person that I can't wait to see how that translates to him being in the Crimean War next week. Or being on another planet or, or whatever. Like, is he, like, going to be – is he going to do what, like, Donna did and try and save everybody from the volcano in Pompeii? Well, I think from what I've seen, just as my time as a person who watches TV in general, of the character that that exists with a philosophy that they are not as important as other people and other people are – you know, helping other people and being of service to other people is the goal. That ultimately ends up putting those types of characters in very reckless situations. So I think they could go a lot of interesting directions with that with Dan. Right there, when when you were talking about him feeling that he's not as important as other people, I also think it makes pairing him with a character who in the past has fundamentally believed there is no such thing as a, as a person who is unimportant is also going to be such a such a dynamic thing to watch because the doctor has such a like a staunch belief that everybody matters. And it's also going to be interesting to see how that works out with 
Yaz, because we know that Yaz has a lot of issues with her self-worth, um, particularly when she was a teenager. She didn't believe that she was worth anything. That makes me really excited for, for Yaz and Dan to share some time together. Yeah, I feel like the promotional material, the interviews and stuff, it was all talking about how, oh, they're going to have this banter because, you know, she's from Yorkshire and he's from Liverpool. But I think there's a lot of real really good potential for a friendship and a camaraderie, even though they do come from completely different backgrounds, completely different generations. I, I think I think you even see the beginnings of that friendship in their first their first scene, which like yeah, is full of all of this banter, but there's that beginnings of an emotional undercurrent of, you know, them working on a trust with each other. Like it, it's not just like banter for the sake of banter. Do you know what I mean? And you also see Yaz sort of starting to trust herself because she wasn't sure if the electrified cage was going to be unelectrified. Yeah. But she, she was, she like confidently strode into that room and talked about the different booby traps that were going on. And then she was like, okay, we're going to just hope this works. And all of this confidence has been, again, it goes back to the performative aspect of it, which could potentially, you know, breaking down those walls could potentially build a really solid relationship for Dan and Yaz. With with you speaking of Yaz's almost performative confidence as well, it reminds me a little bit of Clara in season nine. Like not, they're, they're very different characters, but I'm wondering if Yaz's sort of, if, if Yaz is potentially on a road towards something bad happening from being so confident. Do you know what I mean? Because that's sort of what happened to Clara was she, She'd gotten enough experience from being with the doctor that she felt confident that she could do everything the doctor could, and it killed her. I don't think, like, they're going to kill Yaz, but I do wonder if part of her arc is going to be that she ends up hitting a situation where the confidence isn't going to be enough. Or the confidence is going to, like, really backfire, and then she'll have to figure out what to do when she's messed it up. Well, it would be interesting if they played into that how the doctor would react because the doctor has of course seen this before and takes on like a, a protector role for her friends so will, will you know what would this doctor do to save her friends if it came down to that like we know what 12 would do he'd punch his way through a crystal wall for four billion years and then kick the president of the time lords off the planet break all the time lord laws and and we know what 10 would do 10 would become the time lord victorious Indeed, he would. I think Nine would have, too. Probably even quicker than Ten did. Oh, I think Nine would have burned down the whole world for Rose. Yeah, 100%. So I would be curious to see what this doctor would do in such a situation, because I don't think she's really been put in that situation. She has, you know, done the thing that, like, Nine did, where he sent Rose away from danger. She did that in the the season 12 finale, where she, you know, tricked the companions into a TARDIS and sent them home. Mm Mm-hmm. But I, I, I would be curious to see what the 13th Doctor would do in a situation where she can't just send them to safety. Now, the one character that we really haven't talked about is uh, Vinder, which we didn't really get to know a lot about him. We did and we didn't. We got a little bit of backstory. You know, you know, he's not there willingly. You know, he's got a sense of humor as a coping mechanism. You know, that he... Has a bit of a mouth on him. But we don't really know, like, why he is, 
or, or was where he was, or what he was doing there. Like, we know he was there unwillingly, and we know it's an outpost, so he's presumably watching something. But, like, what, for who, and why are still fundamental blank spots? Yeah, it's interesting. My first thought that I have absolutely no justification, and I cannot back this up, but if you were to ask me the who, what, when, where, why, and how for Vinder, I would say that he either was a Division agent and got in trouble and this is a punishment, or he was captured by the Division and they're putting him here as, like, a prison sentence. I'm, I'm on the same boat. I think, I feel like the likelihood of him not somehow being involved with the Division is not super high. Like, he's got the same fashion sense, he's there unwillingly, so he's either in a prison or it's a punishment for having messed something up, like, you know, like a demotion. And I, and I feel like it's deliberate that they haven't, they didn't say who he was talking to, or even that they were listening. He's been doing this for, I think it was like tens of thousands of, you know, reports, which theoretically he's been doing daily. That was sort of the implication I got that they were daily. So he's been there for a long time. We also don't know, like, compared to, like, Earth time, when this is. Like, we know he's, boy, it was like billions of light years away or something. Something like that. Which is such a ludicrously large amount of space when we know he's going to interact with the characters soon. So is he, like, way in the past? Which would mean, like, when is the flux started? There's a lot of, like, when that is not quite tracking yet because of just the nature of time and relativity and space. It's, it's like, all happening at the same time, but clearly can't be. So that just goes back to time being a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff, as opposed to a straight line. Correct. But, but, but it does make me wonder, like, could he have been imprisoned or, or exiled or whatever before Gallifrey was destroyed this last time? So if, for example, Vinder was exiled or imprisoned or punished or whatever by the Division... Could the, could his punishment have started, and now the division no longer exists, but he doesn't know that? Now, we've talked a lot about positives, we've talked about theories. What are some negatives? Um, the I think I said this earlier, the, uh, the sheer number of subplots was a bit of a negative. In terms of, there just wasn't quite enough time to give some of those, like, sub-subplots the attention they needed, and so it kind of felt like an episode where we're going to throw everything into the kitchen sink and make sense of it later, which is fine, but it did sort of come off a little overwhelming at times, more so than maybe they had intended it to. Yeah, the Centaurans were interesting. I, I get why you want to set them up, because they're in the next episode, but it did, it was just like... They were just there. Like, what, what connection do they have to this? Like, they're going to Earth to do something, to battle. But, like, why is that the thought they're having when at the same time surrounding on either side of that scene, we're watching the Flux destroy things? Like, why would they think the Earth wouldn't be destroyed already? And why the Crimean War? Although that's gonna, that's not something that's, that wasn't brought up in the episode at all. That's just me wondering. Kind of on the Crimean War. How do they get there? Because the Santarans also look like they're in modern-day England as well. There's a shot in the trailer 
of the Santaran ships in what looks like a modern-day setting. So they're not just in the Crimean War. Do Santarans have uh, time travel technology as well? To my knowledge, no. I'm wondering if the Flux, as it's about to hit Earth, doesn't, like, do like a Wedding of River Song kind of thing, where all of time is happening at the same time. Ah. So that could explain it, but that's also, I don't know. But, um, the Santarans definitely felt a little out of place. What I think would be interesting is if the Santarans are in modern London, and then they get sent back by the Weeping Angels. Again, absolutely no basis for that theory, but, you know, if you want me to pull something out of there, pull it out of thin air. What about you? What what, what parts of the episode, because that's really the only thing that I didn't like, was just the, the sheer number of subplots that didn't quite go anywhere yet. So I'm curious, you know, for you, what didn't work about this? A couple of the bantery lines were a bit felt a bit forced, but that might just be because they're still establishing a rapport between themselves as actors. But I also definitely thought that the Carvinista um, and the Lupari and their whole deal with every single Lupari gets a human seemed very convenient and also confusing considering they believe that humans are a much lesser species well they did say their species bonded so i think it's i think it's an obligation as opposed to like well, a how desire. did they manage to make sure that there was exactly one lupari for every human a very convoluted convenient plan i'm not arguing that point because <laughs> it is awful con- it's awful convenient which makes carvinista go from being a bounty hunter to just a dude who needs help with a group project I mean, I think he's still both. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I think his his life outside the Lupari is, you know, fearsome bounty hunter. It's just we're seeing him in the context of his whole species has been recalled to do this thing they're obligated to do. But obligated by who? Good question. I hope they answer that. If they don't answer that, I'm going to be upset because then it's just, it's very uh, deus ex machina. I feel like the, the the lack of answers is something that's going to be an issue in general, where things that we have to hope that some of these things that feel convenient and don't have answers yet will have answers. And Doctor Who's never been great at really fully paying off everything it sets up. None of them have been. Like, a lot of the Russell T. Davies finales were deus ex machina E. I I mean, they literally prayed the Doctor back into being not a little CGI goblin in season three. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, you really don't get much more deus ex machina than that. It, it was very clap for Tinkerbell. Yes. And so that's not, like, an, a, a problem specific to Chibnall. But I do kind of hope, my, my hope is that since he has historically been very good with, you know, multi-part serialized storytelling that did pay off on what it set up. Like, I think Broadchurch at least in season one, because I haven't watched the other ones, paid off a lot of what it set up in a really compelling and satisfying way. It did, but there were there are plenty of elements of Chibnall's other seasons on Doctor Who that haven't been paid off. So either he's got a plan to wrap up every single one of these loose threads, or... Yeah, I'm mostly just trying to have an open mind. I, I, I don't really believe that they're going to be able to wrap up everything because like they never do but we're, we're in early days 
And I don't want to approach the next five episodes assuming they're going to mess it up. Oh, no, definitely not. Like we said last week, we always want Doctor Who to be good because we love this show. Yes. And I would love nothing more than for this to be like Jodie Whittaker's best season. Like talk about like they always say you want to have a great opening and a great closing. Mm -hmm. Well, if you can do like a huge closing story that like makes you forget about all the stuff in the middle you didn't like as much, then like I want season 13 to be that because I think she deserves that. The whole cast does. The whole cast does. But like, you know, whenever Doctor Who fails, it always gets blamed on the writer and the doctor. Yeah. Um. So like she does, her doctor deserves just a fantastic story in the same way that like, you know, if you'd asked me in season eight, if Peter Capaldi deserved a better story, I'd have said, yeah, I want to have a little bit of a better story. And I think he got them in nine and ten. I think that was that was the downfall of twelve was that he didn't have a good opening. He had great closing. Yeah, he, he had a great middle and a great closing. He did, but his opening was just so rough. And I think the same could end up happening here, where maybe Chibnall did plan this out, and it's just been sort of a rough beginning and middle. Maybe. I mean, I think her first episode was really solid, though. Oh, it was. It definitely was. And it was only later. It was only. You know, after that, that season 11 got kind of rough. Was there anything else you weren't super fond of? No, honestly. I think because the episode had so much set up, again, we can't really figure out what the negatives are until we have the completion of those. You know, the shoe has to fall. Yeah, and all the plates are in the air and they haven't crashed yet. I like that I went for shoe and you were just like, break the plates, break the plates. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think until... We start getting some answers. It's impossible to know how good or bad anything that's happened is. But for me, I think like as a like an opening chapter, it like ticks all the boxes, you know? It definitely works as a premiere. Like there's no world in which I wouldn't watch the next episode, even if I wasn't even if I hadn't dragged my friend into doing a podcast about <laughs> Doctor Who with me. Like if I was just a casual watcher, that premiere would have made me go. It did the same thing that The Impossible Astronaut did for me, which is the first episode I watched of Doctor Who. It was like, oh, what's going on? I'm intrigued. And so I kept watching. Because that's what that's what I think with the introduction of The New Companion, it really allows for casual viewers to just jump right in. But it asks more questions than it answers, so it gives casual viewers something to jump into. And I actually think this season... As, like, lore-heavy as it seems like it's going to be, kind of works even better than some other seasons in terms of being a jumping-on point in that, yes, so much of it seems to be about the Doctor's past, but everybody's in the dark about the Doctor's past. Like, she doesn't know, so it's not like the characters know something that a new audience member doesn't know. All they know is that this this woman and this other woman travel together in a blue box and the blonde woman is really confused about her past that's kind of a hook it is a hook like even if even if you don't know anything and then but for the fans it's like oh what is this mysterious backstory about our favorite character for new audiences it's the same thing as watching a pilot of a show that's all about the backstory of the main character and not knowing anything yet it's like ah but that's the point of the show that's what i want to find out yeah 
I too would follow just two mysterious strange women in a blue spaceship flying through space. I mean, the enigmatic quality of it is what's compelling as opposed to if you had a good idea of why two random women were just chilling in a blue box, you'd think, hey, maybe this is creepy and I shouldn't go into the box with them. <laughs> exactly. And it's also like you sort of if you're a new audience member kind of coming into an established relationship without any like anything else, it's sort of alienating. You're like, I feel like I'm missing something here. I don't understand what's going on. But between Dan actually being alien to it and the doctor trying to figure out her own past, there's like two easy jumping on points of, oh, cool, I can be like Dan and learn about these two enigmatic women. And I can also be like the doctor and learn about the doctor. That being said, I have no idea of any like anybody who doesn't watch Doctor Who is watching the show. I don't know. I I would lo- I would love to talk to somebody who watched who, this as their yeah. first episode ever. Can you imagine? Well, to be fair, I did watch The Impossible Astronaut as my first episode. That was a, that would have been a good first episode. It was, but it's a strange jumping on point when you're dealing with an established TARDIS team and then they kill the main character 10 minutes into the episode. <laughs> And the only thing you know about the character going in is that they generally change their face when they die. Except this one doesn't. Except this one didn't. And it's like, what what is going on? I didn't know they were killing him off again that quick. Didn't he just come on? That was my exact, like, it was such a strange episode to jump into. But, like, it worked. And I, I feel like this could be that for someone. Of it just being like, like to somebody who is who is a fan, it seems like such a strange jumping on point. Except I think it could work. Next week we're going to the Crimean War with the Sontarans. What are you kind of hoping? What are you? Yeah, what are you hoping to kind of get out of the next episode? Well, like with any uh, period episode of Doctor Who, I'm very intrigued by the costumes. I I want to have good costume moments. I would like some sort of. They don't need to give us a full explanation of the Crimean War, but I would like to get them to give us a little bit more context for the uh, non-British viewers. And I think that it would be a good way to establish uh, different characters' relationships to um, to conflict, especially armed conflict, uh, sort of in the way that that the ghost box did for Yaz and Ryan and Graham. But I would like to see that. I would like to see that for, cause we know Vinder's going to be in this episode. So I'd like to see that for Vinder. I'd like to see that for, for Dan. And we know that the Carvinista is not opposed to using guns, but in terms of structured military combat, we don't know what his opinions are. So I'd like to just see that because I know that those opinions are going to influence the doctor's relationship with them going forward. I agree. I, I I agree with all of that. And I just want to add on like a, like a grander narrative sense. I'm hoping that some of these middle episodes focus a little bit more on one plot line as opposed to all of the plot lines. So like yes. I hope, I hope the Santarans are really the main focus as opposed to, I want them to be even more of a main focus than Carvanista was in the first episode. Because I don't think he was really the main focus as, like, a threat. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, we, we need one single thing as opposed to the Carvinista, the Flux, the Weeping Angels, the Zontaran. I mean, we know there are going to be subplots. There are pictures oh, yeah. of Swarm and Azure doing something. And we know that uh, the pictures of Vinder and Yaz appear to be in a setting that's not necessarily the Crimean War. Like, there's this... The, the 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 synopsis for the episode mentions a uh, a temple somewhere, some mysterious temple that they don't know anything about. So I suspect, you know, that they're going to split them off. But I'm hoping there's only like one or two subplots instead of, you know, seven or whatever we had this last episode. Yeah, we definitely need a more structured narrative as opposed to the setup dump that we got. Yeah. And I suspect that's what's going to happen. Like the, the the first episode is a big. This is what we're going to be doing, and then the next several we're going to be focusing on more individual strands. Like I don't think we'll see Claire this week, for example. I think she'll appear in episode three or four again. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see Diane this week. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't see Diane for a while. Yeah. So I think that's going to be how it plays out. Is the next several episodes are kind of going to. The, the 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 gang are going to end up intersecting with all of these seemingly disconnected plot lines, you know, one by one until they all get tied together into the climax. Um, that's my guess. That's what I'm hoping for. I would hope for that too, yeah. Because <laughs> I think having them all happening at the same time is just going to be too much. And I, I wouldn't want them to keep that same level of intensity like that. I think they should step back just a hair. And that's what I'm hoping for, in addition to, you know, learning a little bit more about the Crimean War and getting to see how Dan, in particular, you know, reacts to being in that kind of a conflict. And and how that may, and how his reaction may positively or negatively intersect with the Doctor's reaction. Especially as a history buff. He's, you know, this is, this is like his jam. Maybe, maybe he's the one who knows everything about it. That could be interesting if he knew more than the doctor did about the conflict. Yaz missed that lecture that day. <laughs> but I guess we'll just have to wait until this Sunday to find out all of these things about War of the Sontarans. And we hope you'll join us next week on Who's Talking when we break down Chapter 2 of Flux. Thank you guys so much for listening. And have a great day. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.